0: On now? Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate your uh, leading us this morning. Uh, And as we uh, just continue in that attitude of prayer, I'm going to invite you, if you would, to uh, turn to the book of Proverbs. Uh, We'll be looking at just a few verses out of Proverbs 26. I'll look at uh, those verses with you in just a moment. But as you arrive there, uh, continue uh, with me in this uh, space and time of prayer. Lord God, we do uh, thank you for being a God who uh, longs to speak to us. Thank you for being a God who is not silent. Thank you for being a God who is ever creative and always at work, always drawing to yourself. And so, Lord, uh, wherever we begin today, however near to you or far away from you, uh, we happen to find ourselves, would you, through your spirit, Speak clearly and lovingly and draw us to yourself. Turn our eyes again to you. Lord, we do pray that you would give us the the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the heart of courage to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will look at the uh, text here in Proverbs uh, in just a moment. Uh, but let me just set a little bit of the listening context for us before we do that. Um, this morning, uh, we are going to begin a uh, the first of a series of series. And so uh, we're going to uh, be thinking through the summer about uh, how the Bible works. And we're going to begin today by thinking about how the Bible works from an inductive uh, perspective. Uh, we're going to be looking at examples Uh, today and next week and the following week from the Bible itself to help us to understand how the Bible does what the Bible does. And as we think about how does the Bible work, what is the Bible doing, how is the Bible um, coming into our lives, uh, then um, ultimately we will do a a couple of Bible studies uh, later on this summer looking at a couple of short uh, letters in the New Testament to think about uh, how the Bible can do that work uh, with us and in us. So uh, if you are a person who loves the scripture, if you're a person who loves the Bible, this is the summer for you. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time um, thinking together about the scripture. Uh, you'll have opportunities to engage it even more deeply in your Oasis groups, and if you're not in an Oasis group, this would be a wonderful season, a wonderful time to engage in an Oasis group. And uh, you'll have opportunities uh, on your own to, uh, to be reflecting as well. So as we come to uh, thinking about this question of how does the Bible work? Um, we know what the Bible is supposed to do. We we say that the Bible is revelation, uh, that the Bible somehow or another is intended to reveal God to us. And so the question that we're asking is, how does the Bible reveal God to us? How does the the Bible uncover for us the person of God? Uh, There are at least a couple of different ways that we could mean that. Uh, So, for example, my wife, Tammy, teaches a class on the Civil War at Northwood. And when she goes into her classroom, she opens up um, books of history. Uh, She opens up um, letters and autobiographies and biographies and reflections. And she will invite students to read uh, those works. And in the course of reading those works, students are introduced to a whole array of characters. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is in there somewhere, right? I think Grant might be in there somewhere. Uh, Lee is in there somewhere, and probably a whole bunch of people that uh, I shouldn't even try to remember at this point in my life. But there she's introducing, uh, revealing uh, these characters to a class. Uh, is that the way that the Bible reveals God to us? Is the Bible a book that we come to and we read about God? And as we read about God and study about what God has done and what God has said, that somehow... Um, God's person is revealed to us. Uh, Or, on the other hand, is the Bible um, revealing God to us in the way that Tammy herself is revealed to her students? Uh, When Tammy walks into a classroom, she tells stories, uh, she engages with humor, she engages with uh, students, she learns their stories, they converse, they talk, they have um, a relationship that they build together as a student and professor. And over the course of a semester, students get to know not just about Lincoln and Lee and Grant, but they also get to know about Tammy. Is that what we mean when we say that the Bible reveals God to us? How does the Bible work? Is the Bible like a history book that we read and find out about God? Is the Bible like a conversation that we engage in with a friend or with a spouse or with a child? and we learn about the person. How does the Bible do that? Not just revealing God, but revealing God's person. How would the Bible go about that? And here's why, here's, here's why this is such an important question. In fact, uh, as I've been thinking about this for the last year or so, I've, I've come to believe that the question about how does the Bible work, uh, it may be the most important question you'll ever ask yourself it may be the most important question you'll ever ask yourself. It may be the most important thinking you'll ever do as you work out for yourself. How is the Bible doing this? How is revelation happening here? Why? Why is that such an important question? Here's why. Because when you answer the question, how does the Bible work, you are also going to put yourself on a course that will determine for you who is God and what is God like. Who is God and what is God like? will flow out of how you think about how the Bible works. And so what is God like? What does God want from me? How does God want to engage in my life? How do I find that out? If not through God's own revelation of God's self. And so we are back to the question, how does the Bible work again? So I want to uh, look with you at this test case, this um these uh, verses in Proverbs, and we're going to be, as I said, doing this inductively. So this will be an example of many that we will string together over the next several weeks. And as we look at multiple examples, uh, we will ultimately uh, begin to arrive at some ideas about how the Bible might be at work in our lives. And so Proverbs 26, uh, this uh, may initially feel a little bit random, Uh, But uh, sometimes inductive uh, thinking uh, begins that way. So here we go. Uh, This could be a mini-sermon in and of itself. Proverbs 26, verse um, 4 says, When arguing with fools, uh, don't answer their foolish arguments, or you will become as foolish as they are. Verse 5 says, When arguing with fools, be sure to answer their foolish arguments. Or they will become wise in their own estimation. So two proverbs. Well, we well, we were. Uh, whenever whenever I open up the book of Proverbs, there's almost always somebody in the room who says, "Ugh, the this is my least favorite book of the Bible. I don't. It's, it's just it's like a fortune cookie collection. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I could take it or leave it." Uh, and this is exactly the kind of thing that people almost always mean. Uh, don't ever answer a fool. Always answer a fool according to their foolishness. Why would the Proverbs tell us to do both of those things? So if you um, come to the Bible, uh, here's what's behind that, by the way. If you come to the Bible and you think about the Bible uh, in a certain way, if you think about the Bible like this, if you think that the Bible is basically intended to be a rule book, right? if you think the Bible is mostly supposed to be a collection of truth propositions for you to learn about, if you think the Bible is mostly a recipe for you to follow, uh, if you if you believe that the Bible is a rule book or a collection of truths or a recipe, and then you will look at your life and you will say, uh, for any situation that I happen to find myself in, right? any challenge that I'm up against, maybe I have a, a challenge in my finances. I'm trying to determine how I should invest my money or what I should do with my money or where I should spend my money or not spend my money. Maybe you have a question about marriage. Who should I marry? How should I conduct myself in a marriage? Uh, how 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 should um, uh, I be re- related to uh, my in-laws and uh, their family? If I have questions about that and challenges with that. Maybe I have an issue with parenting. How do I raise a child? How do I raise a child? What do I where where would I get guidance about child raising? Is that relevant to anybody here today? Uh, is it? Yeah. How do I do that? Any anxiety about raising children? Where would I turn to to, to get information about that? Uh, how do I engage as a follower of Jesus with government? Do I uh, distance myself from government? Do I engage in uh, the government? Um, am, am I political or not political? Or uh, how do I, how do I do politics? Almost any dilemma, almost any dilemma that you face as a human being. And they're real and they're present and they're constantly churning. And we bring them with us into this room every single week. If I believe that the Bible is a rule book or a collection of truth sayings, or if I believe that the Bible is a recipe to follow, then all I have to do is find the right verse or the right passage, and the Bible will tell me what to do. And it will solve my dilemma. I follow the the recipe. I obey the rule. I find the truth. And if that is how I think about the Bible, how the Bible works, then what kind of a God do I believe in? Who is the God that gets revealed in a Bible like that? One writer says this way, that uh, if I believe the Bible is mostly a rule book, then I believe that God is mostly a helicopter parent. You know, the the term helicopter parent, I'm sorry, it's a a little bit derogatory, right? Um, uh, But the idea is a helicopter parent is the kind of a parent who always is hovering, right? Uh, their, Their child is playing on a blanket and you're hovering for, you know, a stray germ that will wander in or... You know, any mishap that might take place uh, when they go off to school, you're hovering, you're, you know, you're always there, you're always just close enough that in the event that something goes wrong, you can swoop in and fix it or rescue the child or prevent any harm from coming to the child, however you happen to think about that, right? You clear away the obstacles. So, and I get, I get the appeal of the helicopter parents. I get it, right? Um... As my kids have gotten older, here, one of the things that I've uh, discovered is that the issues that they face are farther and farther apart, right? When they're little, it's like you have a thing every second, right? Oh, my goodness, don't put that in your mouth. Oh, my goodness, you smell bad. Oh, my goodness, right? Uh, where are you going? Don't fall down this, right? There's an issue all every second. But the issues get further and further apart. But, but it seems as if the issues get um, bigger. Right. Uh, As the as as my kids have gotten older, uh, in my eyes, the stakes of their decisions have gone up. The consequences for poor decisions have increased. And sometimes uh, as a as a dad, it's just an overwhelming desire to swoop in and fix it. Right. I can bail you out of that problem. I can I can get in front of that for you. I can I can solve that dilemma for you. The overwhelming press pressure inside of me to do that. And what I also believe is that that pressure is more about me. Uh, it's more about my discomfort and my fears and my um, and my need to have things look okay and be okay and uh, to 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 not be helpless. That pressure inside of me to swoop in is more about me than it is about my kids. I understand that. I get that. And I also and I get the pressure to do it anyway. And sometimes do it. And, and I get the appeal of having, have, of having a God who does that. I, if God is perfectly loving and completely powerful and completely wise, wouldn't I want God to come in and swoop in and solve my problems and answer my dilemmas and be a part of uh, solving the challenges that I'm facing? That seems like it would be a pretty good deal. I get the draw to that. But the problem with that view, as I see it, is that that view is magical. That view is more like Aladdin and his magic lamp than the Bible. Uh, That's a view that says, you know, if we teach our kids or we teach ourselves that we just rub the Bible the right way and an answer will pop out, the truth will pop out, the recipe will pop out, the rule will pop out, my problem will be solved. When I begin to treat the Bible that way, then we end up with a very disenfranchised generation because the Bible just simply doesn't behave that way. So let me just be really clear. What I'm I'm sometimes comparing and contrasting is useful. What I'm I'm saying is uh, that when we come to the Bible as a rule book, uh, we end up with a God who is a helicopter parent. What I'm not saying is, therefore, I believe that God somehow is impersonal or that God doesn't care about the details of your life or that God is distant or aloof or detached or hands-off in some way. I'm not saying any of those things. I don't believe those are the only two options. Uh, There's another way of thinking about God's presence in our life uh, that I believe actually takes the Bible seriously, the way that the Bible actually works, the way that the Bible shows up the way that the Bible is um, active today. I'm not saying that God is not interested in the details of our lives. I'm also saying uh, if we think the Bible is mostly a rule book or mostly a collection of truths or mostly a, um, uh, um, a recipe to follow, uh, we end up with a God who is very, very different. So let's start with our example here from Proverbs. Proverbs. Uh, Let's say one day that you are um, scrolling through Facebook, right? And you get to a post, and it's an absolutely ridiculous post, right? You're sort of uh, fringe friends with the person who posted this. Uh, It's on a very hot uh, button issue, uh, and it's um, very, very inflammatory. It's inappropriate. It's wrong. Uh, You recognize um, that you know it's, it's nonsense, maybe it's even dangerous, it's, it's, a, it's offensive, it's objectionable. You, you see the post, it's, it's sitting right there in front of you, right You read through it and now you have a dilemma. Do you answer it? or do you not answer it? right? When you see a post like that, let let's just do a poll here. right? How many of you think now be honest, not just think. how many of you do answer that? How many of you type in something? Anybody, anybody type something in? couple? couple? <laughs> okay, so sometimes. And, and how many of you would never uh, type something in? Okay, you're both wrong. Because if you go to the Bible, right, if you go to the Bible and you say, do I answer a fool according to his, his foolishness? Do I respond to the foolishness? The Bible here in Proverbs says, first of all, yes, absolutely. You should absolutely respond to the fool. And then it says, definitely not. Don't ever respond to the fool. You're both wrong, and you're both right at the same time. How can that be? The Bible has not given me a very clear rule to follow. It has not given me a clear truth to obey. What do I do? You say, well, uh, maybe what you do is you add up the verses, right? You add up all the verses that would tell you, answer the fool, and you add up the other verses that say, don't answer the fool. And whichever one gets the most votes, that's where you go. But we all understand that that would be a very bizarre version of a rule book, right? Recipes don't work that way, right? Could you imagine uh, cooking something like that? And do I add garlic or do I add sugar? Well, uh, the word sugar shows up more often, so it's the sugar for me. Uh, I, how, how would that work if that was the, the procedure? So the Bible isn't functioning here in this case like a rule book. It isn't giving us a single clear truth to follow. Sometimes you answer, sometimes you don't answer. Always, never. Both of them. And so you step back. and You say to yourself, how is the Bible working here? What is the Bible doing? You recognize a few things when you do that. The first thing that you recognize is that the Bible is really, really old. This is a really old book. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. Uh, This piece of wisdom in Proverbs 26 wasn't written for Facebook, right? We all know that, right? Uh, This piece of wisdom was not written for your office conversation. Uh, It wasn't written for your family gathering. You are as removed from the writer of this little proverb um, in history as you are from somebody who will live here in the year 5,000. There's a huge time gap. This is a really old book. And so what that means is the language is different. The language that the Bible is written in is not English, not even King James English. Uh, the Bible is written in, um, in, in languages that don't even exist today. You say, well, Hebrew exists and Greek exists. Yes, Hebrew and Greek exist, but not biblical Hebrew and not, and not uh, ancient Greek, not Koine Greek. The two languages that the Bible are written in primarily haven't been spoken uh, in, in, uh, in eons And so if you think that's not an issue, uh, pick up a copy of Beowulf and read it in the original English. The language is different. The culture is different. Uh, The way that you live your life here today in Midland, Michigan, uh, is uh, dramatically different than the way somebody would have lived their life as a desert nomad. Uh, It's an ancient book. The expectations are different. The, the, the way that people saw the world around them is different. And therefore, the questions that they're asking are different kinds of questions. There, uh, if the Proverbs, uh, some scholars would say that the original Proverbs uh, were written for young men who were being groomed to become rulers. So if the, if the original context and culture and assumptions and language were staying intact for us, uh, none of us would have access to this in the first place. Uh, how many of us are young men uh, being groomed to become kings? Any princes in the room? No? So in the original context, the original culture, the original assumptions, the original language, this proverb would have no bearing at all on your life. And yet we've made it relevant somehow or another when it made its way into our Bible. We have a uh, very old, ancient And that's not bad news. It's not bad news that this is a really old and ancient book. Uh, In fact, uh, when we we recognize that there are still 2 billion people in the world today who are reading this and trying to live by it, uh, it's actually a mark in its favor. Uh, It's survived a really long time and has only grown in popularity. But then we have to also say that those 2 billion people who are reading the Bible Who are reading the same Bible that we're reading are doing so in some very different kinds of ways and drawing very different kinds of conclusions. It isn't just a judgment call, it's a fact that many of us can read the same Bible and end up doing very different things. What that means is that the Bible is not only old, but it's also ambiguous. That makes us nervous, but in the end, we're going to see this is good news. The Bible is ambiguous. Uh, The Bible isn't uh, always as clear as we would want it to be. Like here, what are you supposed to do when you're facing that post on Facebook? Do I answer or do I not answer? The answer is ambiguous. Yes, always, no, never. Both of them are true. And not only here in Proverbs, not only in this particular instance, but in lots and lots of places in the Bible, uh, you might say, "Hmm, answering a fool is hardly central to the Christian faith. This is not a core doctrine that we need to be concerned about. Uh, But we use this example because it illustrates the fact that even on core doctrines, the Bible is ambiguous. Think about something as central to the Christian faith as the Trinity. Did you know that the word Trinity is never once used in the Scriptures? Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity has to be inferred Uh, from what are at best ambiguous verses that aren't speaking to the Trinity at all. And furthermore, the way that the doctrine of the Trinity has been formulated is sharply divided. The way that the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, thinks about the Trinity is incredibly different from the way the Western Church thinks about the Trinity. Two huge swaths of Christianity have drawn very different conclusions about something as core to our faith, as the Trinity. We don't agree on it. Something like the atonement. We did a whole series of messages on theories of the atonement. You would think the atonement being as central as it is to our Christian faith, that it would be really clear in the Bible exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Why did Jesus die and what happened when he did so? And if you look at the history of theology in that question, you'll see that the answers to that question have run a gamut of of, uh, solutions. Uh, The the best thinkers on it today will come to a place of saying, uh, we really don't know exactly what happened. And so we have these terms like the mystery of the atonement. Uh, There is ambiguity, to say the least, on a central doctrine. How about something as central to our faith as worship? The scriptures are really clear. We are only to worship God. Don't worship any other God. Only worship God. And then you would be right to ask the question, well, what does it mean to worship God? How would one go about worshiping God? Great question. There's not a single liturgy anywhere in the scriptures. There's not a single worship service that's that's uh, detailed in total. Uh, we uh, is, is the worship of God... Individual? Is the worship of God corporate and collective? What are are we talking about when we're talking about worshiping God and only God? It isn't clear. And so you can go just here in Midland to a hundred other congregations and have similar but not identical worship experiences. The call to worship is ambiguous. What about something like baptism? Uh, Again, a central doctrine for Christians. Baptism, uh, we would recognize, is at the very center of what it means to belong to the community of faith. But what does baptism mean? When should you baptize somebody? When should you not baptize somebody? Do you baptize only infants? Do you baptize only adults? Do you baptize both infants and adults? We don't all agree in this room on the answer to that question. We have different views about baptism here in this place. Why? Why? Because on a central core doctrine of the Bible, you can find verses that say baptize only adults. You can find really good examples that suggest infants should be baptized. You can find examples of both infants and adults being baptized. It isn't all that dissimilar from always answer a fool, never answer a fool. The Bible is ambiguous on core doctrines. Take the Ten Commandments. Set aside for just a moment the question, the ambiguous, thorny, challenging question of whether or not, as followers of Jesus, we're even responsible to live by the Ten Commandments. That's not completely clear. We have all different views on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law. Uh, It's ambiguous. However, if we decide that the Ten Commandments are important and they reflect something vital about who God is, we might come across a commandment that says something like, honor your father and your mother. What does that mean, though? We would all say yes. It says honor your father and your mother. We would all say honoring your father and your mother is mostly a good thing to do. And and even if even if I am absolutely committed to the idea that the Bible is a rule book, that the Bible is a collection of truths, that the Bible is a recipe that I just simply have to follow, how do I relate to my parents? Simple. Honor them. Okay, now here comes the ambiguity. What does that mean? How do you honor your parents? The Bible doesn't say. There's no one clear answer on how to honor your parents. What if your parents are monsters? What if your parents were abusive to you? What if your parents ab- abandoned you? How do you, on- in which parents? Do you honor your birth parents? Do you honor your adoptive parents? Do you honor your foster parents? Do you honor grandparents? Which parents? And how would that look like in my life? Does that mean complete, uh, um obedience? Does that mean uh, when they're uh, infirmed, I take them into my home and care for them? And I and, um, and, you know, would never uh, dream, right, Ben, of putting my parents in a facility someday? Would never, ever think of that, right? Honor your parents, right? You are on the hook for us the rest of your days, young man, right? That's what I believe honoring your parents would be, right? And if you happen to be wealthy, all the better. Right? What does it mean to honor? What does it mean to honor your parents? Right? We have all made decisions about that. We've all interpreted through our lens an ambiguous command. And that's one of the big ten. The Bible is ambiguous. The Bible is old. It's ancient. And the Bible is diverse. The Bible has lots of answers. And you would expect it to have lots of answers because it's written by an whole slew of different authors. It's filled with different kinds of literature. It has different perspectives. It has different contexts. It's asking different questions. Uh, There are huge national divisions that happen along the way in the story of God's people that change everybody's perspective completely. There are about 1,300 years that elapse between our first uh, recorded uh, snippets of scripture and the last letters of the New Testament, about 1300 years. The time frame over which the Bible was written is, um, is about as long as, um, is, is about as much time as elapsed from the time of Charlemagne to your time today. So you would imagine there'd be some diversity of thought. So here we are, and we come looking now for an answer. Do I type my comment or not type my comment? Do I answer a fool or not answer a fool? And in at least in this case, and I'm suggesting many, many others, the Bible just refuses to behave like a good rule book. It doesn't just simply say obey. It refuses to do that. Instead, the Bible is going to work by teaching me something bigger what the Bible is going to do is teach me wisdom. So wisdom is going to be a big category in this conversation, the category of wisdom. And in uh, the book of Proverbs, wisdom makes sense, right? We, these are saying wise sayings. Proverbs are by definition intended to teach us wisdom. And what we're going to be suggesting through this series this summer is that not only is the book of Proverbs intended to teach us wisdom, but the entire Bible is intended to invite us to a place where we're learning and practicing wisdom. And when we're talking about wisdom, some of us are saying, "Ah, eh, that doesn't sound, that sounds odd to me. That sounds like philosophy, not Christian faith. Uh, when we're talking about wisdom, though, we're talking about more than uh, just being smarter. Sometimes when we think about wisdom, we know better, but our mental model of wisdom is, "Ah, eh, the Bible, you know, just to make me smarter and that's not what we're saying. When the Bible talks about wisdom, uh there are much much higher stakes at play. Uh so uh one way we can see that is that the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And I absolutely guarantee you that a fool in the Bible is something that you do not want to be. Right? You do not want you do not want to be a fool. You do not want God to think that you are a fool. Uh being a fool is is a bad way to go. So there there's some um um Um, similar words that always get used to describe a fool in the Bible. They're ungodly. They're ignorant. right? They're prideful. They're greedy. uh, They're destructive. Their own destruction and the destruction of others. Uh, Look at some of these verses following, um, verses 4 and Uh, um, 5. Just before it says, God a horse with a whip, a donkey with a bridle, and a fool with a rod to his back. So, here, the book of Proverbs, uh, in its own ancient, uh, diverse, ambiguous, well, maybe unambiguous way, is saying, if you meet a fool, take out a stick and beat the fool, right? So if that's our verse, not just typing, right? But you go in, in, uh, and then just after this, trusting a fool to convey a message is as foolish as cutting off one's feet or drinking poison. In the In the mouth of a fool, a proverb becomes as limp as a paralyzed leg. Honoring a fool is as foolish as trying to uh, as tying a stone to a slingshot. Think about that for a minute. Right, tie that stone in there and see what happens. A proverb in a fool's mouth is as dangerous as a thorn bush brandished by a drunkard. You do not want to be a fool. The opposite of being a fool is to be a person who is wise. If a person who is a fool will lead you away from God. Person who is wise, a wise person, will lead you towards God. And there's the question Am I moving towards God or away from God? Am I becoming more like God or less like God? That's what's at stake here. And so, even in the face of that kind of question, am I a fool or am I wise? Am I moving toward God or away from God? The Proverbs are ambiguous. Always answer a fool. Never answer a fool. I spent a few uh, hours this past uh, week over on Hope's campus and uh, observed the uh, opening of our General Synod, the, uh, den- our denomination's uh, national gathering. And uh, at the, uh, the first session of Synod this year, uh, they did something that, to my knowledge, they've never done. And that is they spent some time on a concept of listening prayer. And uh, the person who was instructing the session about listening prayer uh, referred to the book of James. Uh, James is also a book of wisdom, by the way. It's filled with wisdom, sayings, wisdom literature. And, in fact, James is right up front about that, the very beginning of his book. uh, This is the verse that the uh, teacher about listening prayer cited. Uh, It's from James 1. He says, if you need wisdom if you do not know what God wants you to do, ask. If you need wisdom, ask. And here's what, here's what struck me about that. If this was all the wisdom I would ever need, if all of the answers were already in the answer book, if all of the rules were already in the rule book, if all of the ingredients were already in the recipe, if all of the truth was already in here, if it was all good to go, I would have all of the wisdom that I need right here, and I wouldn't need to ask. Why does James say, if you need wisdom, not go back to the scriptures, although he wouldn't disagree with that. He doesn't say, go find the rule. Go uncover the truth. What does he say? Ask. Sit with that for a minute. If you need wisdom, he says, ask. Why would he want to do that? If this is all you need, unless even James doesn't think that that is what scripture is unless the Bible itself doesn't think that's what the Bible is. The Bible itself says we still need to ask. So I come to a set of Proverbs that says, answer a fool. No, no, don't ever answer a fool. Always answer a fool. Never answer a fool. What do I do? If I need wisdom, what does James say? Ask. So here's what I want us to, here's what I want us to try. Is it possible... Is it possible that what James is saying is that the Bible will always push you back to God? The proverb will always push you back to prayer. The Bible will always push you back to the community around you. What should I do? What do you think? Should I respond? Should I not respond? How do you think about that? What have you seen? The Bible will push us back to prayer, it will push us back to community it will push us back to listening to God's Spirit. God's Spirit, who not only inspired the writers of these words, but who now also inspires our listening to these words, our wrestling with these words, our understanding of these words, and our application of these words in our day, in our context, in our situation. And what we're going to say this summer is that this is not somehow foreign to the Bible. But this is what the Bible is doing all along. As much as I get it, what I believe is that helicopter parents ultimately produce lazy kids. Uh, Helicopter parents ultimately produce underdeveloped kids. Kids who can't regulate their own emotions or think about their own challenges. Helicopter parents tend to undercut all of the development that it takes for somebody to actually mature. And what I want to say is that God is a better parent than that. God wouldn't do that to you. And so the spirit that we recognize today, the Holy Spirit, the gift of God to his church, is a spirit of wisdom And because we have the gift of the spirit of wisdom, we don't come to the Bible with sort of passive obedience. But rather we come with active engagement, hard questions, deep wrestling, profound prayer. And as we begin to do that, we meet God. God is revealed to us. And the character of God begins to be formed in us. That's how I think the Bible works. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we do uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for a thousand years of men and women and kings and shepherds, rulers and peasants, insiders and outsiders, winners and losers for a thousand years of, of of people like that engaging you, wrestling with you, asking of you, seeking wisdom Lord help us to do that help us to be faithful to your word not just as a passive rule book to follow, but as a living conversation where your spirit is alive and active in us. Lord, help us to trust you enough for that to be our story too. In your name we pray. Amen.